All right, if you would turn with me to John chapter number two, and or if you would uh, rather, <clears throat> excuse me, follow along on your um, device, your phone, and the scripture passage will be up for us to look at together. And we've been for several weeks um, thinking about Advent, the coming of Christ. And, uh, you know, one week I think I said a month is not too much for us to just sit down in this place and think about the coming of Jesus, and so we're going to return to that topic today in a kind of an unusual place in the Gospel of John. We've uh, been saying that Advent means arrival, and of course some of that concerns itself with the birth narrative of Jesus, but not only, because the scripture, uh, when we think about his coming, we know that Jesus was on this earth in human, a human being for about 33 years. And so his life, his coming, involves more than just that birth narrative. But let's look at this passage in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter number 2, beginning there with verse number 1. The Bible says, on the third day, and really uh, probably it means three days later, on the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now, both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then that which is inferior, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he, his mother, and his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. Father, thank you for this uh, Christmas Eve, this day where we remember that the light has come into the world, and we thank you that you've come here to this dark place. You've come here to bring truth and meaning. You've come here to bring hope and assurance and peace And we thank you that in you we find all of those realities revealed and manifest. And so we pray that you will speak by your spirit. God, your purpose in your word is to reveal, to to show. And so, God, we pray that for those of us today who have gathered here to worship and to hear this message of Christmas and its hope and meaning, that your spirit will speak to us by your word And God, through these emblems of worship, the light of this candlelight service, the bread, the elements, the the wine, the juice, God, that portrays these important spiritual realities, we pray that you'll speak to us. And we love you, we praise you, and pray it in Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I, I love this passage because one of the things that we see in it is, of course, what God is like. When Jesus came, when we watch Jesus, we see what God is like. And Jesus, when uh, he was on earth, attended a wedding. It was like he, could, he had 33 years. It was a limited life. He could have done anything. But in the passage that we're reading, we see that Jesus went to a wedding. His mother had been invited there. And he and his disciples had been invited. But when I was reading and thinking about this passage, I think one thing we know is that this is probably a poor family. One of the reasons we would assume that is because they ran out of the most important thing that they needed for the uh, wedding ceremony. They ran out of wine. And it tells us that they were probably living in these little tight margins where some of us can relate, you know, like... I think early in our married life, I could relate to living in the very tight margins of necessity. And it's probably where they were. Also, the fact that Mary and Jesus were invited indicates that socially, uh, they probably were not going to be invited someplace where wealthy people were. Because they themselves were poor, we know, from the uh, gospel narrative. And Jesus goes to a wedding. He is a fan of mirth, M-I-R-T-H, another way of saying joy. And, and not only is he a fan of joy, he is a bringer of joy. So where Jesus goes, there is joy because Jesus is there. And I think it's a good idea, uh, idea to be instructed by that, Christians, followers of Jesus, that when we look at Jesus we see him communicating through his presence joy. And we say misery loves company. Well, misery may love company, but it's not a very good advertisement for Christianity. So being like Jesus, being people who in our person have the, the ability to reflect hope and joy is important. He went and instantly where Jesus goes, he makes things better. Officiated a lot of weddings in over 30 years of ministry. One thing I know about weddings is that they tend to be tense. People are anxious at weddings. They Why? It's a big day, right? They want everything to be just right. They want everything to go well. I can tell you something they hope doesn't happen if they have wine at their wedding. They hope they do not run out. And we think about Jesus gets invited to this event, and he makes it better, and that's instructive too. If we want our matrimony, uh, we, we have aspirations, if those of us who have gotten married, invite Jesus in, that's a good idea. He's likely to make everything better. But people are anxious because they want the celebration to go right. They want to put their best foot forward. They want the, the uh, event to be Amazing. That's what they hope. And in in this situation, they run out of wine. Weddings in those days, people say the ceremony could last up to seven days. I don't know what they were doing in those days that they had seven full days to celebrate a wedding, but they say that's often what would happen. So they had to provide wine for a feast, not just for one day, but for a feast. And so... Uh, the prospect of running out was horrifying, humiliating. It would have been humiliating to this family, and Jesus is invited there. 
and he, he comes to this wedding at Cana of Galilee, and we see a side of God in watching Jesus, and the thing that we grow to see is that joy is his specialty. That, it's important to know that about God because sometimes we lose sight of what God is like, and we think God is a joy kill, or we think God is different than, than what we actually see if we read about him in Scripture. And rescuing people out of hopelessness is God's specialty. That's what we see in this passage, a hopeless situation that God enters into, and he rescues people out of hopelessness. Taking our celebrations like today, you have a family I assume you'll go home to. There's something that we're going to do that's going to mark Christmas Eve, Christmas Day is special. When I left my house today, I did not want to leave because it smelled amazing. When I got married to my wife, one of the first things I experienced in our family was seafood Creole, uh, seafood filet gumbo, seafood filet gumbo, which you have to be committed to to make. It's like this: the stock has to cook for several days. She doesn't make it very often because it is a job, and I'm watching her in there. And when we left home, it smelled amazing, and I can't wait, you know, to go back and eat this stuff later on. It's got crab and shrimp, and oh, all you can do is eat it and lay down later. That's about the extent of what you can do the rest of the day. Awesome. But we think about our family gatherings and how they get infused with special meaning. And like for me, the thing that made Christmas unique was as a 24-year-old young man finding hope, finding meaning finding what I was made for in, in Christ. And Jesus, when we look at what he does in this wedding feast, we see that he infuses it with significance. He takes this celebration that could have been a catastrophe, and he in, interjects it with not only immediate relief, but ultimate significance by his presence. What we can see in this celebration is kind of a miniature picture of what God says life means. He says this is what life means. Not just this little incident, not this little blip that occurs on the calendar, but he shows us underneath that there's something phenomenal that's at work. And so... When we look at the passage, there are just two truths we'll look at in, in the, the message. But the first one is that Jesus shows us what God is like. He comes to this wedding. I've shared before, like, when I came to faith in Christ, I love music, but I didn't know how to find Christian music. Like, I'd been, you know, the music that I was familiar with, I, I'm like, I want to be a worshiper, I want to know, but I, you know, I found eventually people like Michael Card, and I quote him often because he, he's a brilliant songwriter and theologian too, but Michael Card wrote a song called The Wedding about this passage of scripture, and in it, he, he um, it's an expression of a prayer, and probably uh, people have had this song sung at their wedding, but the, he takes the narrative and he turns it into a song and part of the lyrics say, Lord of life, oh, come to this wedding. Take the doubt and darkness away. Turn the water of lifeless living in, it, it, take, turn the water uh, in, of lifeless living to the wine of gladness. 
we pray. Mother Mary's gently requesting that you might do whatever you can. Though she may be impatient, she loves you, and so she asks what she can't understand. And this is this part I really like. He says, so amidst the laughter and feasting, there sits Jesus full with the fun. He said, that's what Jesus was like. Here sits Jesus full with the fun. He has made them wine because he is longing for a wedding that's yet to come. See, he's anticipating something more. He's there in person at this wedding, and it has meaning. But also, he's showing us that there's something else at work in the way that life is intended to be. Jesus shows us that we are created for great joy. That's one of the things that we see in Jesus. You were created for great joy. Well, Life doesn't always lend itself to joy, but joy is something different than circumstances and whether or not everything is upright or sideways in our, in our life. But he, we see in him we're created for joy, and so a good question is why not participate in it? If, you've been, if it's true that you're created for joy, why not participate in it? If we want to know what God is like, we look at Jesus at this wedding and we can see that our faith in Jesus, one of the things that the Bible teaches in a few places that faith looks like is that it anticipates a greater wedding feast and family celebration, a greater wedding feast. Matthew 22, when Jesus taught about the kingdom, he said the kingdom of heaven is like a wedding celebration. For And this man's son is getting married and he sends out invitations and he says, guess what? I want everybody to come. But he had a stipulation. And the stipulation is that you had to be dressed for the wedding. And he is the one in the analogy that we get in the Bible who clothes us appropriately for this event. He takes away our dirty rags, and he gives us instead righteousness and cleanses us and and washes away the the sin that alienates us from God. But there's a wedding celebration. Matthew 22 and then Revelation chapter 19 calls it the the wedding of the, uh, the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. And it, it describes for us there the uh, this celebration. And the Bible shows us that that's the tilt of all human history is toward a time where we recognize and we celebrate with God as part of his family. And we see that it's deliberate. And in this passage, that's the first idea. The first truth that we see is what is God like? Well, he's like Jesus at this wedding. But secondly, we see him responding to our cries for help. There's a problem in the narrative, and it is, of course, that this family has run out of wine. The Bible tells us that this is Jesus' first public miracle. And his mother is trying to initiate, call to action uh, Jesus and for Jesus to provide something for these uh, this family. And we think, Okay, Mary, did you know that Jesus could turn water into wine? We don't know what Mary knew, but we know she knows Jesus' backstory. She was there when the angel appeared to her and told her what kind of child this 
this was. And the Bible, the Gospel of John, when you read it, ends by saying that there are many other things that Jesus did, and it says, which if they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. The last thing that the writer says in the Gospel of John is that there are, uh, this is an incomplete account of everything that Jesus did. The, the four Gospels that you see, well, of course, when you read them, they begin there with uh, Jesus' birth, and then we see just one story from his childhood when he, his parents have gone to Passover, and Jesus stays behind in his teaching in the temple, and the rest of it, until he shows up at 30 years old, we really don't know a whole lot about what happens, but this says something about some of that, that there are a lot more stories that could be told. And, of course, I think Mary absolutely knew Jesus could resolve the issue that this family is facing. One writer, in thinking about this, says, she acts in confidence that Jesus will hear, like many earlier seekers of God, who will not take no for an answer. So that's a good a posture. Jesus commends it in Luke chapter 18 where he says uh, people ought always to pray and never give up. His mother first says, hey, they need wine at this, at this wedding. They were out of wine. And Jesus says what? What's that got to do with us? Why would he say that? I'm, it seems odd, especially given the fact that eventually Jesus solves their problem, Right? But there's something about that, too, that I think shows us how to be people of faith, that it's not about Jesus' reluctance as much as it is sometimes about the need for us to be persistent, for us to continue. And Jesus meets needs when we cry out. I think about that. I I cried out. I prayed before I even knew how to pray. I prayed when I was a lost person without hope. And eventually those prayers turned into maybe more informed things, but it was in that crying out where I began to meet God. And, and there's crying out that's happening here. Mary appealing to Jesus to um, interject himself and to solve the problem. And I thought about this. At first, my question when I was you know, thinking about this text is, why did Jesus delay then act. That was the first question I had. Why did he delay and then act? And of course, his answer also says to his mother, my hour has not yet come. So when we think about what hour is that that he is talking about, well, Jesus' hour is has to do with the hour of his sacrifice, his crucifixion, his death. And his path led to the cross. So we we think about the manger, but also we know in the gospel there's a manger, there's a cross, there's an empty tomb, there's a throne. That's the progress of this story. There's a manger. He comes as an infant, as a baby. There's a cross. And Jesus' entire public ministry existed in the shadow of the reality of him going to the cross and being pierced through there and dying in the place of human beings as a sacrifice, the perfect one, taking the place of us imperfect ones. That's the the gospel narrative. And so every public miracle heightened the tension that existed between Jesus and these powerful people who eventually would 
plot to execute him and then would execute him. So when Jesus talks about his hour, really what he's saying is there's a line that when, when it's crossed over, when Jesus' ministry becomes public and it begins to attract attention, then there's a short period between that and when he dies on the cross. And so he says, my hour has not yet come, and yet Jesus acts. His, this hour is about the strategic time of his death. So when we look at the chronology or you know, we look at how things are going to happen, about three years from this event is the Passover when Jesus is in God's timing going to die as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But... The nature of Jesus' ministry is that he came to bless and rescue and to bring hope to people. And so his mother's petition is, as I say, a miniature representation of the gospel. We think, what is the gospel about? What does it do? Well, it takes people who are in hopeless circumstances and it brings to them something that they could not access apart from God's help. That's what the gospel does. Same thing in this story. Jesus takes uh, material, he takes water. Water doesn't become wine. That's not the process. The process is grapes that people step on in a vat, ferments across time. That becomes eventually wine. But water doesn't ever become wine no matter how long it sits there. That's not how it works. Jesus takes water, and because he is God, and because he can, he transforms it miraculously into a completely different substance. That's what happens in the narrative that we've read. And so he takes the limits that are there and interjects himself in, removes them, and brings rescue. That's what he does. Same thing when it comes to people, humanity, our problem and need. He, the Bible says, interjected himself as the sacrifice for humans. He gave to us his body. That body was killed. It died. We're going to take communion in a little bit, and we're going to see how these elements are representative of what Jesus did. But Jesus died. He didn't faint or swoon. He died. He was placed into a tomb for three whole days. When he was put into that tomb, he was a dead person. The Romans were thorough in examining. It's why when you read the narrative of the gospel, you see that they take a spear, they thrust it up into his side while he's uh, on a cross, hanging there, suspended. They made sure he was dead. And then he's placed into a tomb. And what happens to a dead body? It begins immediately to degrade. It begins to go through change. It decays. But the Bible says uh, about Jesus that on the third day, his flesh was animated again. That his breath, he began to breathe again. That blood began to pulse from his heart and through his veins again. And that he stood up and he spoke and he lived again. And so what Jesus does in this narrative that we see here about 
the this need of people who are they're on the in the on the cusp of being humiliated. So the someone comes to them, Mary comes to Jesus and says, "These people are about to be humiliated," and Jesus rescues them. He takes away their humiliation. The possibility of their humiliation is removed instantly. And here's here's what the scripture says about that, how it applies to us. Whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. What what's the risk to us ultimately, cosmically? You know, when we think about our beginning, our end, and the Bible says we face in the end a righteous judge. That's who God is. God created everything, including you, and God Himself is perfect and holy and righteous. Yet what do we know about ourselves when we're honest? We know that all have sinned. When the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, that's certainly true. That there's a standard that we don't measure up to. And so the risk for us is to be exposed as frauds. <laughs> I want everybody to think well of me, but if everybody knew the worst about me, I would be embarrassed. And not only that, I haven't met God's standard of acceptance. There's something deficient that I need that I don't have. And the Bible says this transaction that was happening in the life and ministry of Jesus was Jesus bringing perfection to imperfect people out of God's love. God's love for us is manifest. God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So when we read this story, what we see is that he rescues them from humiliation. But guess what? He rescued you from humiliation. He rescued us from exposure against the day of judgment. But the Bible says it's by grace that we're saved through faith and that not of ourselves. It's a gift of God so that no one can boast. So faith means that we acknowledge in our will this rescue is what we need. And God created people with freedom. So he doesn't force people. He doesn't manipulate people. He, he created us to be free, but in that freedom there are limits. And part of that limit is that there's a day of judgment. There's a day in front of us in which we have to have received this gift that God gives and, and so we know about receiving gifts. It just requires openness. It requires willingness. It, it requires us to say, yes, thank you. I'm going to open that up. And, and that's what Jesus is for us. He's the gift of God, the gift of God that takes away our humiliation, that gives us, the, I can stand before God if I died right now knowing that I've been a blemished, imperfect, impulsive, impatient dark person at times, I can stand before God in full confident hope because Jesus says, I'm not going to let you be humiliated. I'm not going to let you be humiliated. I covered over your junk. I took it away. I cleansed you. I washed you. So we see Jesus intervene and, and take away their humiliation. It really is a, a, a way of us understanding that's what he did for each of us in his resurrection. And the Bible says, and in his sacrifice, 
God raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it was not possible that he should be held by it. I love that. Because it ties so well into this story. The same one who could take these elements, this, who, who could take the, the water and turn it into something water would never be, that same one, it was, there was no way that death could hold him because of who he was. He was going to come out of that grave. It was inevitable. Because there was no way that death could conquer the one who made life. He's coming out of that tomb. And God raised him up from the dead. And he freed him from the agony of death. And death could not possibly have held on to him. And his presence increases joy. Jesus uses instruments of Jewish legalistic ritualism for the purpose of bestowing grace and favor. That's a neat part of this story. In their house, they've got these jars that what would happen is when you went into a home, the, you would immerse your arms into these jars as a ritual way of uh, being clean. Jesus takes that legalistic ritualism and he turns it into favor and mercy and, and the wine that would flow from those jars. There's irony here. We think about joy. Joy doesn't mean we won't face challenges, but the passage shows us that God is for us. Do you want to know what God is like? What we see about God in this story, God is for us. And if God is for us, who could be against us? The uh, scripture writer says, the apostle Paul, This passage reminds us that God cares for us and provides for us and that our faith in him will never be misplaced. We wonder, is faith effective? Our faith in him will never be misplaced. He will always be thoroughly who he says he is and who he is is good. And what he does is what we need. Rescuing us when things look hopeless is God's specialty. And it's what Jesus came to do. The passage that we see illustrates in a simple way everything Jesus came to do. When he enters our reality, it can only get better. He underpins life with joy. His appearance in our story ensures that we have grace on top of grace. Grace for every situation in which grace is required, which is many, many of the situations in our life. He's the missing ingredient. Sometimes we think, what's missing? What is it in my life that I need? I know from my own personal experience that after 24 years of living without Christ, I found, okay, yeah, here it is. Here is what I was made for. The one who created life came to me, and he he brought to me life, what it really means. The origin of life comes to us. That's what this season is for. To, to remind us again and again and again that the one who is life came to us to show us, to bring light into our dark spaces. When we do whatever he tells us, I like that in this story. He tell, the, Mary tells those people, do whatever he tells you. That's really good advice all the time. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. When people remarked about Jesus in the Bible, they said, Mark 7, 37, he does all things well. He's done all things well. They have this guy in the story who's called the master of the feast. He's he's kind of a bouncer when you read about uh, what... He was there to ensure that nobody got really, really drunk. 
He was there to, as a master of ceremony, sort of, but he's the guy that goes, hey, usually people put out the good wine, and when it's all drank, uh, they've all drunk that, then the inferior, but you save the best for last. Jesus is the master of the feast. He can change more important things in your life than the property of liquids. In this story, he changes the property of liquids. But in your life, in my life, he can change more important things than that. He can change our unhealthy attachments, which he often does in processes in our life as we follow and trust him. He can change our character. He can redirect our waywardness. You see that in the Bible. Is he changes people's character. And a lot of times it's like, okay, I've been a swindler and a cheat, and, but I'm going to restore, you know, with the, uh, some of the tax collectors. They're like, I'm going to, he changed their character. He changed the kind of people they were. He can re- redirect our waywardness. He's the way. He can be trusted to meet our needs. He isn't reluctant. He can change our destiny, and he invites us to his wedding feast, this greater wedding feast, and he can transform our family gatherings. And he is the true and only source of joy. So if we want to know what God is like, take a look. We see it here in how Christ is. I want to uh, have a prayer for us. We're observing communion today. In a moment, the worship team will come up and help us. And the way that we do this uh, is a manner called intinction. Most of you have done it uh, here as you observe communion. We're just going to ask you to form a line and to come down. Uh, If you are a follower of Christ, this is an expression of worship. That's what it is. Just like we've sung and prayed and all the other things we've done, it's another aspect of our uh, expression of worship. And so we'll ask you to come, you take the bread, you dip it into the cup, and you, and you receive it, and it represents what the Bible says we've been describing in the gospel, that Jesus gave his body for us, and his body was the sacrifice, the sin payment for us sinners. The, the one who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of Christ in him. And then the, the, this is juice that we have, When we receive it, we remember that the Bible says without shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. There's no forgiveness unless Jesus' blood has been spilled on our behalf and God's justice satisfied. So when we partake in this, that's what we're saying. We're saying this is our gospel hope. And so I'm going to pray. We're going to stand and we're going to ask you just to form a line, follow what others have, are doing. If you're participating, Ken, if you'll come he's, uh, as we prepare to serve. And we invite you to come. That's what God does. He invites us to his table. And so it may be that you need to um, uh, seek him for cleansing and forgiveness. If you're uncomfortable or, or have some sickness or some uh, reason not to participate in this way, 
Jonathan has the uh, sealed um, uh, communion cups, and he will be happy to help you in that way as well. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the uh, goodness that we see exhibited in your way. God, what you're like. When you became a human, what you showed us about your heart, we thank you for that. We pray today that as we uh, partake together of this celebration, that it will be for us just a reminder of the this way that you've behaved, that there was a manger, there was a cross, a tomb, and now that you're, you're seated on a throne. And yet as a king, you invite us to come to your family and to your feast. And we, and we do that, fully acknowledging your right to uh, rule our lives. And we pray now that you'll uh, bless as we observe this time together in Jesus' name. Amen.